The scripture passage that we're looking at today is from Exodus chapter 24, and we're continuing a series of calling it Forged in Fate, how God made his people Israel, and in reading and understanding this, we can see how God is still making us today. Now, I'm going to wait and read this uh, a little bit later in the context of the whole message, but um, before we start, though, let us bow our heads in prayer. Good and heavenly Father. Lord, you have given us your holy word and your Holy Spirit to guide and direct our lives, our hearts, and our steps in life. And Father, we thank you for this gift. But as we look to your word, Lord, we know we cannot understand the truths that are revealed here unless the same spirit that inspired those words would inspire us again. So Father, I pray that you bless this time we have right now, Lord. Bless our hearts and minds that we may hear, that we may understand your good and perfect will for our life. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as a lot of you uh, probably know, that uh, one of the jobs of uh, being a pastor entails uh, working with couples who are about to get married. And this uh, usually entails a, a meeting together a few meetings that we call premarital counseling and the premarital counseling has uh, has has two goals the first thing is you want to plan out your wedding ceremony so everybody has kind of agreement what they want the ceremony to look like uh, but more importantly is what you want to do is express to the couple that they understand what it is they're doing what to understand what it is to mean to be bound in Christian marriage what Christian marriage is all about and what it means and that is the main purpose of that premarital counseling. Let the couple know what it means to be married to somebody in the Christian covenant of marriage. Now, usually these are real happy occasions, right? I say usually, you know, because there's a lot of joy. They can't wait. They're excited to get married. They just can't wait to do this part and that part, and they're talking a lot about it. You know, a little stressed out because it's starting to get, you know, starting to get heavy. A lot of the responsibilities are starting to weigh in, the planning of the wedding. But every once in a while, I sense some ambivalence on one of the parties. Now, I'm going to tell you it's the guy, okay? <laughs> I'm sure it's not always the guy, but every time it's happened to me, it's been the guy. And it's not a complete reluctance, but there is a little reluctance. And as we're starting to talk about this, I'm just noticing this hesitancy. On the part of the guy. And, I, and, and it's real important to talk about this because you need to have this all cleared out before you get to the altar and make your vow of marriage. And so I will say, I'm noticing a little reluctance here. Is there, is there something, what's going on? And almost always, it's the excuse is the exact same. I just don't see the point in getting married. That's what he'll say. And this is what, he'll, he'll even back it up. He'll say, listen, I love her, and I'm going to love her forever. I don't want to be with any other woman. I don't want to have another woman in my life. She's the only one I want. I'm going to be with her forever. I've already decided that. So I don't understand why we have to do the marriage. And sometimes they'll even push it even further. You know, we live together. We own property together. We even have a joint bank account. Sometimes they can say we actually have kids together too. I don't see the point in having to go through the marriage. Now I'm watching this the whole time. 
And I feel for them. I do. I feel for him, but I can also see he's not being honest. That's not his real problem. And so I, unfortunately, have to call him out. And I can usually do it with one question. I can say, all right, if you're already going to do all these things that marriage entails anyway, then why not get married? If it's just a useless ritual, if it's just some, some legal stamp, a piece of paper, then why not do it? And that's usually when I get like kind of the deer in the headlights look. Like, uh-oh, he's got me. And I'm not trying to trap anybody. I'm just trying to get the honest answer out of this guy and the reason for his reluctance. And the reason for his reluctance is not because he believes marriage is pointless and it's just a useless ritual. The reason for his reluctance is he understands it's very serious. He understands that he is about to commit himself to something very, very serious. And he's feeling the weight of that responsibility. And that weight of responsibility frightens him. And it should. If you go into a marriage covenant without a little bit of nervousness, then it might be you don't understand what you're about to do. And I think those guys that are the most nervous and reluctant, they get a bad rap for, oh, you're scared or commitment, you're scared to commit. But I want to give them credit for understanding what it is they're about to do. And I think on some level they realize that they're about to enter into a covenant. And they might not even know the word covenant. We don't use the word covenant a lot anymore. But that's where they're about to do is enter into a covenant. And they know a covenant is serious. And they know once you enter into a covenant that you've bound yourself into something that is not easily broken. Because you're about to stand up in front of people, in front of witnesses, and we invite people to weddings for one reason and one reason only. It's not to see how pretty the bride's dress is. That's not why we invite you to weddings. We invite you to weddings so you can be a witness. And that's what makes it a covenant. And that's why we, we really don't like doing private weddings with no one there but the bride and groom because we've got no witnesses. And you've got to have a witness that can say, I saw you make a covenant. I heard you. You made a covenant. And when people are reluctant to enter, it's because they know there's this huge responsibility. They're about to say in front of other people and enter to a covenant and give their word onto something that cannot be easily broken. That is something that should always be taken seriously. Now, I bring marriage up because marriage and the covenant of marriage has always been used to describe our relationship with Jesus. Jesus and the apostles talked about the church being the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom, and we are the bride, collectively, the bride of Jesus Christ. And our relationship with him is a covenantal relationship just like marriage. Now, when Jesus and the apostles talked about that, they were actually borrowing older language, going all the way back to the Old Testament when God called Israel his bride. And he was the groom, and Israel was his bride. Now, often, often, unfortunately, when he talked about Israel as his bride, he was talking about them being a very, very unfaithful bride. But they were still his bride. They were still his bride, they were still his people, and it was still a covenantal relationship. That's what made Israel God's people, the covenant. And that's what makes us the people of Jesus Christ. The covenant made to us 
through Christ Jesus. And through that, we are, as the song goes, signed, sealed, and delivered. Feel free in your heads to go, I'm yours. <clears throat> I know some of you are doing it already. So last week, if you remember, we talked about um, in salvation is how God makes us his people. And that is a key important step. When he saves us, he makes us his own because we can't save ourselves. He rescues us. And in that rescue, in that salvation, we belong to him completely because now he has 100% rights over us. He ransomed us away from sin. And, and, and legally, we belong to sin because we were under sin. So he ransoms us, he buys us back, he saves us from sin into his righteousness and into his salvation. So now we belong to him completely. But that's still like a guy who said, I'm going to love you forever, but I'm not going to marry you yet. The marriage is where it's sealed. The marriage is where it becomes official. When God saves us, we are his. We belong to him already because he's bought us and he's paid for us. But it doesn't become official until we make the covenant. Salvation makes us his and it becomes officially his when we enter into that covenant with God. Now last week, if you'll also remember, when, when God saved Israel, it was through the waters of the Red Sea. Right, Israel, they were, they were enslaved in Egypt, and, and God, through Moses, was able to convince Pharaoh, who was very reluctant to let him go, to let his people go. But when he let him go, they were wandering in the wilderness, and Pharaoh changed his mind, and he sends chariots and armies after the Israelites, and they're stuck between the Red Sea and these armies of Pharaoh, and there's nowhere they can go. And that's when God saves them. He splits the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites pass safely through, and when the Egyptians chase them, the sea collapses back on them, and he kills every single one of them. At that point, they belong to God completely. At that point, they belong to him completely because he has ransomed them from slavery, and he has bought them by his own salvation. But it's not official yet. It's not official until they enter into a covenantal agreement with God where he becomes their God, and they become his people. So this happens right after the parting of the Red Sea. Not right after, it's sometime after it. They're, they're in the wilderness, and God says, I'm ready to make you my people. I'm ready to make you officially, officially my people. And to do that, we're going to enter into a covenant. And a covenant is it's, it's like a contract or an agreement, but it's, it's, it's more powerful than a contract. Because a covenant has, has spiritual authority binding it as instead of a, a contractual authority, which is just legal. A covenant has legal authority and it has spiritual authority uh, that binds people together who enter into a covenant. So, so he's leading through the wilderness. He says, I'm ready to make a covenant with you. I want you to go to Mount Sinai. So Moses gathers the people to Mount Sinai. And, and I want to point out that this covenant is not a private affair. Okay, this is a public affair. This is not just Moses getting a word and then later telling the people what God said. That does happen. But there is a public element to that, as in all of Israel knows what is happening. And they're all about to enter into it together. So God brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and then they watch, and they see these clouds descend on Sinai, and there's these fire, and there's clouds, and the sound of this trumpet, and Israel's all sitting there looking at God coming down on top of the mountain in this, in this cloud and fire. And then God says, I want Moses to come up and talk to me. And Israel's like, yes, that's a good idea. Moses, you go. 
you, you go up there. Because we're looking, no, we don't want anything to do with that. You go, Moses. That's, that's good. And so Moses goes up to Sinai, and what he gets there is the terms of their covenantal agreement. He gets the terms of the covenant. And God sends them back down and says, I want you to bring these terms to them to see if they agree to this. The terms of the covenant are quite simple. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And this is the way he says it in Exodus 24. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. I want you to remember that phrase. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is the terms of the covenant, but Israel has to agree to it. So Moses gets more details, and that's the Ten Commandments and the basic outlines of the law, of what Israel's responsibility is going to be. So they have to agree to this, though, because God wants us to enter into a free will covenant. He's not making us do this. We're not compelled to do this. He wants us to come to him of our own free will, just like we come to marriage of our own free will. So Moses comes down and he gives them the outlines of the covenant, the basics of the law, the Ten Commandments, and, and, uh, and the real basics that follow out of that. And then this is where he, he's making the covenant. He, he lays it before Israel. And this is our scripture. If you look in your bulletins, Exodus 24, 3 to 8, the moment when God makes his covenant. It says, Moses came down and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this was the moment of truth. This is when they truly became God's people. They went and Moses said, this is the rules. And he read them out to them. And they said with one voice, one accord, this we will do. All the Lord has said, we will do it. And then Moses does something that kind of little strange with us. He throws blood on them. They've sacrificed these oxen and half of it he threw on the altar. And he takes his blood to all the people. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant. And he goes and he, and he splashes people with blood. And I know it kind of sounds gross to us. We're like, oh, okay, really? Do we have to do this? But back then, all the most important covenants were made in blood. The, actually, the old Hebrew word for making a covenant is actually cutting a covenant. When you make a real important covenant, you cut usually some meat. And it's uh, through that blood that the covenant is finally being sealed. But the important part of this covenant is a simple exchange. I will be your God, and you will be my people. God looks at Israel, and he promises them, you're going to be my treasured possession. I'm going to watch over you. 
I'm going to guard you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to grow you up. And I'm going to be a God to you. And you are going to be special to me. And Israel's part in this was that they would obey. And that was the point of the law. All that law that we have in the Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all those rules and statutes, that was Israel's part in the covenant. He would be their God, that's his part. And to be a God to bless them, and their part was, we will obey you. And that is essentially how God makes people. That's how it becomes official, is we make a covenantal agreement with God. Now you've got to point out here that God is still making people this way. He's still making people by entering into a covenant with them. He did it that way with Israel, sealed in the blood of a sacrifice. And he does it with us today, sealed in the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. See, in that first covenant, when he, when he made it with Israel, he was making them his treasured possession. But when he made that covenant, it was his plan from the beginning that this covenant of being God's people, it started just with the, the descendants of Abraham, just those who were related to Abraham. But from the very beginning, this covenant was made in order to go out and to be offered to everybody in the world. All the way back when it started with Abraham, he said, Abraham, in you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And what he means from that, from the very beginning, this plan is not just for a select people in a select geographical area who are selectively related to this one person. This covenant is meant to one day go out to all people of the world. And in that first covenant he made with Israel, it was Israel becoming his people. And this was just the seed that he was laying for a covenant he was going to make with all the people of the world. And in the fullness of time, when it came, Christ was ready to do that very thing. But to do it, he needed a new covenant. He needed a new covenant that came in the form of Jesus Christ. Same basic principles. I will be your God, you will be my people, you will be my treasured possession of all the earth. And this one sealed in the blood of Christ. Because all the important covenants require blood. Now when we become Christians, we think always of being saved. Right? We're saved. And that is an important part of that. It's a critical part of that is being saved. But what we don't always remember is the authority part of that covenant of being obedient people. So when we take Christ, we don't just take him as Savior. We take him as Lord and Savior. And that's some, uh, some other language that's lost on us as being democratic people. We don't have lords anymore, at least not earthly lords. But when we take Christ, when we take his salvation, we're entering into a covenant, covenant relationship. You are going to save me. You are going to give me that salvation. You are going to bless me and to be my God. And now I will make you my Lord. And that means we are now put under the authority of Jesus Christ. Just as ancient Israelites put themselves under the authority of the law to be in that covenant, we come in a covenant of relationship and put ourselves under the authority of Jesus Christ. And he becomes our authority. He becomes our Lord for the rest of our life. 
That's why confession is so important. That's why it's a big deal that, that when you join the church, when you first become a Christian, we make you get up and profess in front of other people. That's why it's not enough for a person just to say, well, I just believe in my heart. And it's good you believe in your heart. You need to believe in your heart, but you also have to come and make a public confession. Because in making that public confession, you are entering into the covenant of Jesus Christ by saying, I will be under the authority of Christ, and I recognize Jesus as my Lord. But instead of sprinkling you with blood, thankfully, we sprinkle you with water. We sprinkle you with the waters of baptism. And in those waters of baptism, you are entering into the covenant of God. And we even do it as, with our children, because as parents, you have the authority to enter into a covenant on behalf of your children. And so we baptize our infants by bringing them into the covenant of God. Now, of course, when they reach age, they have to do something we call confirmation. And that's confirming the covenant. When they reach the proper age, then they stand before others, confirm and enter the covenant themselves by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that is what makes it official. That is what makes it official, and now you belong to Christ. God is your God, and you are His treasured possession. And we celebrate, we remember that every time we take communion here in this church. You can think of that actually as even renewing the covenant of Jesus Christ. Remembering the covenant of Jesus Christ. Celebrating the covenant that we've made in Jesus Christ. Y'all might remember the words that I speak here. I speak the words of Jesus when he said, this is my body broken for you, and this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Because with it you are made the people of God. You know, these guys that are unsure about marriage, they get a bad rap. They get a lot of unwarranted criticism, in my opinion. They're always accused of too scared to enter in a relationship and, you know, too scared to make a commitment. But I feel for them. I feel for them because they, I think, understand the responsibility that they're taking on. And it scares them because a covenant is a big responsibility. Now, my advice to them is always, yes, it is a big responsibility, but it's not bigger than God's grace. And if you lean on him, he will give you all you need to fulfill this responsibility well. And I always make sure to say this to them as well. Ultimately, ultimately, it is a responsibility, but the blessings and the joys of a marriage covenant the benefit of being in that marriage covenant far, far outweigh the responsibilities. Because if nothing else, you've got security in a covenant. Because in a covenant, you know that no matter what happens, you still belong to each other. Now, when we enter into a covenant with God, it is even more serious than that. It's also a big responsibility because in that covenant, we become the people of God. In that covenant, you're no longer your own authority. 
You're no longer in charge of your own life. You have given the authority of your life to the reign of Christ. But just like marriage, the blessings, the joys, and the benefits of being in a covenant with God far, far outweigh the duties and responsibilities. Because in all the world, of all the people that God loves, and God does love everybody, but when you enter in a covenant with Him, you become His treasured possession. And He does love everybody, but you get to be His treasured possession. Think about that. And let me ask you, do you think of yourself as a treasured possession? Because if you don't, you should. You are God's treasured possession. Does that make you special? Absolutely. It becomes the most special thing about you. And moreover, entering into a covenant with God gives us the security of a covenant. Because we know no matter what happens to us, not even no matter what we do and how we stumble and how we sin, no matter what, we belong to God. And we will be his treasured possession forever. See, God's covenant is not like a human covenant. Our human covenants last as long as our life does. But a covenant with God, that's as eternal as the heavens. And in his everlasting covenant, though the earth would die, Though the seas would dry up, though the stars would fall from the sky, what will never change, what will never be moved, is that you will always be his people. And you forever after will remain God's treasured possession. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.